Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. First thing that, that comes to my mind as I think about that tonight is this idea of reproduction, this idea that I have sown into you, now you go sow into others. I have prepared you, now you go at work with to, to, to live out the preparation that's been prepared in you. I have sown into you, I have encouraged you, I have... Now, I want to reproduce you what I've sown, these principles I've sown, I want to reproduce you to other folks. That's hard to do in, in, in certain times of life, isn't it? Especially when um, something's broken, relationship's been broken, hard to carry on. Uh, job loss, hard to carry on. Physical illness, mental illness, uh, spiritual illness, hard to get, loss of... Marriage, loss of loved one, loss of life, loss of... It's hard to carry on in those kinds of times, isn't it? It's hard to say, you know, I've got, I've got what I need to move on. But getting what I need to move on and moving on are two different things sometimes. And so I hope tonight from this text, we're encouraged to see that that's what he's called us to do. And, and we need to be about what he's called us to do. As we, as we look at this, this idea of carrying on, that's, that's what the, these folks did when, when after Jesus died and, and even after he ascended. Um, probably, in fact, carrying on after his ascension was a harder deal than carrying on after his death. I would, I would think. Uh, I don't know that to be true, but I would think that to be true because of some things we'll look at later here from this text. But let's read uh, these last few verses of chapter 15 and, and uh, then into chapter 16 through verse 8. Chapter 15, verse 42. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and mother of the Mary of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint the body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, I want us to pull the symbolism from the burial of Jesus and the symbolism from his resurrection into our life. I don't want to look at that tonight so much, and you've heard this story over and over, but I don't want to look at that tonight so much historically as we look at it symbolically in this, in this idea of burying ourself, burying our old self, and allowing our new self in him to come to life. 
We can't get to the new self unless the old self is buried. That's the problem you and I have in our struggle is the new self's trying to take over. And the Holy Spirit is leading and, 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 and loving and guiding and directing. And here's this old guy that rears his head up every now and then and, and bucks the system of what the Holy Spirit's trying to do with, the, with this new man. So we've got to bury our old self. I want us to look at this in three areas. First of all, in the things I believe, look at verse 42 and 43. It was preparation day. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for uh, Jesus' body. Joseph knew the, the customs and beliefs of the day. He knew that, that nothing could be done on the Sabbath in relation to, that, that first of all, someone didn't need, to be stay, didn't need to be left on the cross over the Sabbath, and that the preparations for burial and putting a person in the tomb and all that had to, had to be done before the Sabbath, before actually sunset. Uh, the day before. So it was preparation day. He was trying to get all this done before sunset. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And the key word here, I think, in verse 42, or 43 rather, is this idea that Pilate went boldly to Pilate, or, or, or Joseph Arimathea went boldly to Pilate. Now, we learn from another gospel, we learn, we learn from Luke's gospel, that Joseph and Nicodemus were both friends. In fact, uh, when it says here in verse 43 that they were a member of the council, they were a member of the Sanhedrin. They were likely Pharisees because the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, believed that death was the end. So, so they were likely Pharisees and were a part of the Sanhedrin, a part of the council that had just put him through a mock trial, that had just brought him before everybody of, of, of Jewish leadership to say, he says he's king of the Jews. And it's turned him over to Pilate. Pilate turns him over to the people. The people decide to crucify him. So he's experienced all of this. He's gone through the steps of all of this. Now, probably from what we believe here or what we see here, he likely stayed silent during most of that time. He and Nicodemus both. Because Nicodemus had come to Jesus, as you, as you remember, privately by night and asked him, how can a man be born again? You know, he can, does he reenter his mother's womb? What's, the, what's going on? What are you talking about in, in being born again? So Jesus explains to him what that process is. Joseph, like me, but not like Nicodemus, is likely a closet believer. He's likely recognized that Jesus is indeed Messiah. He's likely gone back to the prophets and seen this suffering servant was who he was talking about in Isaiah. This is the God. This is the one. So he comes here to ask boldly. Now, the idea that he's asking boldly says a lot about his witness. And it also says a lot about the consequences of following him. It says a lot about his witness in the sense that now, with this word boldly, and boldly here basically means publicly. He's coming publicly before Pilate to say, can I have the body of Jesus? Something a Pharisee would not do because the Pharisees are the very ones who put him on trial. So coming boldly, coming publicly to Pilate, he's laying himself out there. He's laying his belief in Jesus out there. Likely, he lost his position on the council because of this move, and he knew it. This was probably a calculated move on his part because he takes him here to, a, to what we learn in the gospel as well, another gospel, to a virgin tomb, a tomb that had never been used before. And so whether the tomb was a family tomb or whether the tomb was purchased, we don't know that, uh, but either are sacrificial on his part to take the body of Jesus and either put it in his family tomb or the body of Jesus and put it in the tomb he purchased with his own funds is something that just was not done. It, it wasn't even done in Jewish culture, much less by a Pharisee, to a person like Jesus. So the fact that he's coming out of the shadows here with his faith is something really significant. And um, I think it's a great lesson for you and I that he recognized who Jesus said he was, believed who he said he was, came boldly to his 
or to to the aid in his his aid in his in his burial here. Um, so his belief became made known. Um, some of the things you and I need to bury in our old self is this idea that that gee, my faith is just for me. It needs to be kept to myself. And our and our culture feeds us that over and over and over again. Go ahead and believe what you want. Just keep it to yourself. That's the that's the common message of our culture. It's it's uh, you know. We're all one big melting pot, so go ahead and believe what you want, long as you're sincere, long as you keep it to yourself, uh, and don't, don't infringe on me, it's fine. The second thing, though, is this. It's bearing my old self in the things that I question. Look at verse 44 and 45. Pilate was surprised to hear he'd already de- uh, died. He summons the centurion, this, asks the centurion, is this true? Is he, is he already dead? As I shared with you last week, the process of crucifixion took usually between 24 and 48 hours for someone to die. That's the very reason they tried to keep them hydrated because most died from either suffocation or dehydration, both really cruel ways to die. So they kept him, tried to keep them hydrated while they were on the cross to prolong the suffering, to prolong the, the, the torture uh, in that process. So he dies, as we looked at last week, in six hours, three of them in total darkness. And, and uh, so Pilate questions all this. The centurion, the same centurion last week that we saw stood there in front of him. It was his job to guard the whole deal, make sure nobody came, stole the body, make sure nothing happened. He stayed there. He was, he was at his post for that six hours, three of them, as I said, in total darkness. He's the one who says uh, there, um, just before this text that we read in verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, why is it that you and I have his word, we have these things that we're exposed to, these, uh, the, the truth of his word, the, the, the experience of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and we need more confirmation. Pilate needed that. He needed the centurion to confirm to him what likely was already in action, already happening, because as we said, Joseph had already come to him, a respected man of the council of the Sanhedrin. Why would he dispute Joseph's? Uh, account that Jesus was already dead. Um, he needs further confirmation, so he draws us into during to come in. It's just true. I mean, has he already died? What's going on here? This is extremely rare that a, cruci- a crucified person dies in six hours. Uh, so he had great doubts. A great lesson here for you and I as well. In burying our old self, one of the great things that rears its head from the from the enemy over and over and over in your in your life and my life often is this sense of doubt about: Are we really saved? Am I really? Am I really him? And do I belong to him? Does he really come to live in my heart? Is he, is he really in here? Do, sometimes I don't feel like I'm a Christian. Sometimes I don't feel safe. Sometimes I don't feel like I, I have a genuine relationship with him. Do I really? Is it, does it matter what I feel? Does it, does it matter what I know? Which of those things trump the other? And what I want to encourage you to do is, is what Pilate did. Is he confronted this situation in bringing the centurion to himself. I've shared this story with you before about doubts that I had in my late teens and went to the place where I trusted Christ and, and, uh, and asked the Holy Spirit and the enemy to duke it out there because I was not going to deal with this anymore. Either I was trusting Jesus that day or it was settled that day for me, and it was at that day and in that time and in that place. And I would encourage you, whether that's a situation about your salvation or about something else in your life, if there are doubts there, guess where they come from? Every doubt you and I know and have comes from the enemy. It's not the Lord who wants us to doubt who we are, whose we are, where we're going, what our role is, what our call is. He don't want doubt, any doubt and, and, and second guessing about any of that. So if doubt is in our mind and in our heart, it's come from the enemy. Deal with the enemy. Don't be afraid to deal with him. Take him to that place. Take him to a place of prayer. Take him to a place of scripture. Take him to a place and deal with him about your doubt. Draw a line in the sand to say, this is true or it isn't. 
I'm going to settle this issue right now. Will it ever come up again? It hasn't for me. Uh, your own story is your own story, whether, whether you allow the enemy to creep doubt into your mind again or not. But one of the things that keeps us in bondage, I think, in our, in our faith is not burying that old man and allowing the enemy to creep up doubt again and creep up. Really, you think God can forgive that sin? Really, that one? This thought? This? And so that doubt kind of reproduces itself and it builds, it grows into a cancer. And it keeps us from being all that God's intended for us to be. So, not only do we need to bear the old self and the things I believe and the things I question, but in the evidence that we have to others. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where Jesus laid. We can only bear witness to what we've experienced. Um, and Mary Magdalene, they follow along here. Obviously, they follow Joseph uh, to the tomb and they follow, follow along and see that he's been prepared and he's been wrapped in linen and laid in the tomb and the, and the stone's been rolled over the door because we, we see that in, in this next chapter. But we're, they're concerned about who's going to roll the stone away for him. So they witness all this and they watch all of this. And you and I can only, can only share and bear witness to what we've experienced, not what we've heard about. And if you and I have experienced a genuine relationship with him, we have a story to tell. If we've heard that and absorbed that from someone else, we don't. Um, as this is rolling off my lips, I'm, I'm seeing in my mind's eye an episode of Matlock where, you know, uh, objection, hearsay, you know, where someone is on the stand telling something that someone else has told them which is inadmissible in, in court. It's supposed to be, at least, inadmissible in court. We're supposed to tell what we've seen and heard, what we've experienced ourselves. And, um, and that's, that's often uh, hard to do. I, I remember this will date me, so I'm a dated guy anyway. I remember the Watergate hearings. Some of you may remember those as well. And, and remember Howard Baker in those big black rim glasses sitting behind the big table. What did the president know? Asking John Dean, the president's attorney, what did president know and when did he know it? He wanted to get to the bottom of what was known by the president. And so it was secondhand information coming from Dean because the president wouldn't appear before this council, the Watergate committee. But you and I can and should testify to our experience, to what we've seen God do in our own life and not absorb someone else's story and not absorb uh, someone else's belief, someone else's pattern of practice of their faith. We, we need to bear our own witness. Our, our, our evidence that we belong to him needs to be our own and not someone else's. Um, great to have Christian parents. Great to have influences. Great to have coaches. Great to have teachers. Great to have folks who have invested in you spiritually. But your experience is yours and theirs is theirs. And we need, we need to, to make that distinction clear all the time and keep that clear in our own mind and in our own heart. Now, moving on to this idea of living the new life in chapter 16. I want us to see, first of all, that that's done with a sense of priority. Look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices. The Sabbath was a priority to them. So they waited until the Sabbath was over on the first day of the week, early in the morning here in verse, uh, uh, verse 2. But they come after the Sabbath is over with. And this was done probably because it was customary, but it was done out of some level of conviction and respect that they had for the Sabbath. As well, we don't worship on the Sabbath anymore. Well, some do. Seventh Day Adventists still worship on Saturday, uh, which which was the Jewish Sabbath day. We worship on the first day of the week because He arose on the first day of the week. Most New Testament churches do things that way, but I, they had great respect for the Sabbath in 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 their in their treatment of, of death and burial and all of this. And and I think that's that's wise counsel for you and I to 
to have a priority system, to have a, a sense of this is important to me and I'm not going to compromise on it. We talked this morning um, in our men's Bible study about this idea of priorities and that priorities is, is really what happens in between total authority, having no say on the one side, and total choice, having no authority or no accountability on the other side. And so we looked at Scripture on both of those ends of saying, in Colossians, Jesus is, is looked at as he's before all, he is in all, he is, he is through all, he's above all. He is the authority, he is supreme above all else. And we looked at this, this uh, parable that he told about, uh, uh, was teaching in, in Luke, about the banquet and inviting folks to come to the banquet. And somewhere in between those things falls our priorities. Somewhere in between total authority and total choice is us interjected with our own priorities. We're either going to submit to the authority of him and his word, or we're going to adapt our own free choice and become another Adam that says, here's what I was told to do, here's what I'm going to do. And so we find ourselves usually day after day after day in that chasm between his authority and our own free will. And, he, you know, I've often thought many times over the years, and I've shared this together in, in, in family studies, that the most dangerous thing God ever did was give man his own will. Knowingly, give man his own will because he knew, because he's omniscient and he knows everything, he knew that man would choose to walk away from him. He could have made puppets, he could have made clones, he could have made folks that would love him from now to eternity. He didn't do that. He gave man a choice because he wanted man to want relationship with him. And so there's where we stand in between his total authority of his manipulating everything in our life and everything in our world and our total choice of no accountability, no authority. And we find our priorities in there. And you have to govern that for yourself. I don't know, uh, I don't know how important spiritual things are to you. I don't know how important, not the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day is to you. Um, but I see that it's cyclical. I see patterns that it's cyclical. In fact, during World War II, church attendance was at an all-time high in America. After World War II was over, church attendance waned back. After the assassination of JFK, church attendance peaked again at an all-time high and gradually declined again after that. In the first Gulf War, especially when we learned there were the first report that there were American troops that had lost their lives in, in Iraq and Kuwait, church attendance peaked again uh, there in 91 uh, and waned again after that. After 9-11... Church attendance was at an all-time high in all of history. In fact, most records that are kept in Protestant and Catholic denominations said that the week post-9-11, the Sunday post-9-11, I don't have the date with me, but that was the all-time high of church attendance in the history of the world. Guess what's happened since then? It's waned again. What does that tell us? It tells us that in crisis, people need and want to know, is God there? Can I trust him? Can I depend on him? But it also tells us that aside from crisis, our priorities are closer to choice than authority, aren't they? Our priorities are closer to my own free will and my, and my own accountability to my own self rather than following after what God wants me to do. And his being the supreme, his being the authority, his having first place in everything. Well, that's a dangerous choice. It was a dangerous choice in the garden. It's a dangerous choice today. But there are consequences to our, to our decisions, consequences to our priorities, consequences to our own value system. They had it together. <laughs> Mary had it together to say, 
The Sabbath's for worship. I'm going to worship him uh, on the Sabbath, and we'll go tomorrow, which they did. That brings us to the second thing. is We live a new life with a fresh start. Look at verse 2 and 3. Very early on the first day of the week, um, they go after sunrise, and on their way to the tomb, they're, they're bringing spices. wonder who's going to roll the stone away for them. This phrase, very early, speaks to discipline and priority on the, on the, on the part of Mary Magdalene. In fact, as early as she could go at sunrise uh, on the first day of the week, Sabbath was over at sunrise. So as soon as Sabbath was over, she's disciplined enough to get up early and go and grab Mary and Salome and and get the spices together and take them to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, Mary, I think, Magdalene lived a determined, prioritized life, and we see that reflected here out of her because she received a fresh start from him. If you'll remember her story she was the one caught in adultery, and she is brought out in front of uh, the townspeople and, and, and by the religious leaders of the day and brought out in front of Jesus, half-clothed likely. And, uh, and they, you know the story, share with him. She's, here's this woman caught in adultery. The, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus stoops down to write in the sand and gets back up, and you know the story. He says, let the one of you that has no sin throw the first rock. And so one by one you hear... Rocks hitting the ground, and guys walking away. And she is no doubt probably on her face before him in shame, and he raises her up, lifts her up, says, Woman, where are your accusers? And she looks around and sees no one, and he says, Then neither do I condemn you. Go. But look at what he told her. Go and don't do this anymore. Go and turn. Go and repent. Go and be new. Don't go back to your old self. Bury that old lady. Go and repent, and I'll give you new life. I'll give you a new way to walk. And he did. He gave her a fresh start that changed her for eternity. It changed her forever. She became this, this person with great discipline, this person with great priority, and this person with a reputation now that was not who she used to be, but who he made her to be. He gives you and I that fresh start. And that's, I think, the secret to our understanding and motiv- being motivated to live this new life is this sense that he gave me a chance. <laughs> he recreated me from the inside out. And not because I owe him that, I do, but because he is good and he is the only one that could do that, I need my life to reflect him and be given back to him every day. Um, not only is, is this, does this, uh, this very early phrase here speak to her discipline and, and to the fact that she, she lived and led a prioritized life, this idea that they, they bring spri- spices I think leads to, uh, at least metaphorically, if not literally, the fact that spices were used to not only preserve the body, but to, to, to keep the smell down as decay began to happen in, in uh, someone's tomb. So this bears the question, if, if, if he can change the fragrance of a Mary Magdalene, of a, of, a, of a prostitute caught in the very act of adultery, he can do that for us. And so if he can change the fragrance she leaves and the, and the trail she leaves, the track record behind her, he can do that for you and I. And so the question begs here then, what kind of fragrance do we leave? What kind of fragrance do our attitudes leave? Do our relationships leave? What kind of fragrance do our conversations leave? What kind of fragrance do our Facebook posts, our Twitter posts, our, te- our emails, what kind, of, what kind of trail do we leave behind ourselves? What reputation do we have as leaving a fragrance of Christ or a fragrance of us? And she undoubtedly wanted the fragrance of Christ to be that of a good one. Now, that brings us to the third thing, and that is expecting the unexpected. Look at 4 and 5. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. 
And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Notice they weren't alarmed that the stone was gone. In fact, they were talking on the way, who's going to move the stone for us? So that wasn't that uncommon for a stone to be gone or or be moved necessarily if, as I say, someone someone was coming to anoint a body for burial and and, and, uh, lay on spices. Their concern, their alarm was over this guy sitting there. I'm sure they noticed the body of Jesus gone and the linen cloth laying there in the tomb. And him gone and this guy rope standing in white over here saying, wait a minute, there's no need to be afraid. This Jesus of Nazareth, he said that you came to see, he's not here, he's risen. Um, and their, their alarm here is, is at the messenger instead of the fact that, that the tomb is gone. Why is that? I think it's because they were dwelling on the past and not on, what, dwelling on what was instead of what can be. Because they fully came to the tomb expecting to see his body. And like his disciples, they followed him frequently and heard the story. In fact, heard many parables over and over again, like the, I'll tear this temple down in three, three days, rebuild it again, referring to himself. But here in, back in chapters 13 and 14, he told the story literally about himself. I'm going to die, but I'll rise again in three days. And they, they still couldn't get it, still couldn't grasp it. He was talking to them about him, and it was literal truth. Well, the reason I believe that's true is here they come to his, to his tomb, expecting him to be in the tomb. And expecting to to be able to anoint his body with the spices there. And um, their focus, as I say, was on what was instead of what is. What was was Jesus was with us. He no longer is. What was true then was he's alive. And I came with the wrong expectation. I came to anoint death to a person who's living and who's alive. Um, You and I, as, as we grow more mature in our faith, we will tend to Expect the unexpected and not be surprised when it happens. That, is, that as I say, is a maturation uh, a deal because the immature tend to be surprised when God shows up and does something significant in life, around them, in circumstances, in their job, financially, in relationships. A person who has a mature walk with Christ tends to expect and not be surprised at those kinds of things when they happen. Why? Because God has shown up. <laughs> A person mature realizes God has shown up in this suffering. He's shown up in this hard place. He's shown up in this dark spot. He's shown up in this, in this financial hole. He's shown up in this relationship. He's shown up in a marriage that was about to go on the rocks. He's shown up, he's shown up over and over and over again. Why? Because he's God and he's promised to be in me and through me. So as I've, as I've trusted him, as I've built this track record of faith and my root system in him has grown deeper, I tend to expect the supernatural. I tend to expect God to show up and do something that only he can do in a situation that I'm willing to give to him and not take control of myself. Um, but as we, as I say, as we grow and mature, we tend to need to expect the unexpected and not be surprised by it. It, it blows me away. <laughs> well, it still blows me away. Let me say it that way. When, when I have a conversation with somebody who's been a believer 20, 30, 40 years, and God will do something and they'll... And I want to, everything in me wants to rejoice with him. You know, God showed up and, and he brought healing over here. He, you know, wasn't that cool? Isn't it? Isn't, isn't, yeah, it is. But why is that surprise? You know, everything in me says, wants to rejoice with him. But part of me says, man, you need to expect that. You need to expect God to walk with you that way. Not be surprised when he does something for you. Not be surprised when he comes through. That's what he's designed for. That's what relationship with him is all about, is walking with him in intimacy and expecting him to work through us and not being surprised when he does. Finally, though, this fourth thing of living the new life is telling the story. Look at verse 7. Here's what he tells them. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. 
Um, <laughs> this idea of go and tell is still... In our complex world, the simplicity of the gospel, I think, still is, is stark in the complexity of our world. Uh, in fact, it's, it, many of our many Christian authors and leaders and writers think it needs a lot of help. And so it's, pack, it's been packaged in so many different ways, and, and I, you know, I, I'm not against any of those ways. But I, there are, I can think as I'm running through my mind right now, at least a dozen different evangelism tools, different tools for sharing faith conversationally through the Scripture, through, through a book, through some, some method that's been taught or learned or shared in a conference or whatever else. And really it gets back to one thing, and that is telling the simple story of the gospel. Jesus loved us. He came to die for us, died on the cross for our sin, resurrected the third day, ascended to heaven, coming back again for us. That's a simple story that changes people's lives. Still today, in the complexity of our world, that simple gospel story can change someone's life. There is power in that. The Spirit will use that story over and over and over again, and that's why the guy sitting here in white says, go tell the story. Go tell. He's not here. Go tell the story that he's not here. Now, they don't do that. They're totally shocked but he says go tell the story of what's what you've seen and heard he's not here he's risen remember he said he was going to rise again he's risen he's not here there's that same power in our story if we'll learn to tell it because your story and my story has stories in intertwined of forgiveness they have stories of grace they have stories of mercy they have stories of power and over and over and over again as this simple gospel story meshes with our own story, what God has done for us. God will use that. He's promised to in his, in his word. Use that over and over and over again. Here's what I want you to, to see, though, out of this verse that is incredible. In fact, if you've got a pen with you, underline in your Bible, he is going ahead of you. He is going ahead of you. I'm going to tell you, that is, that is one of the most encouraging. In fact, if you can... If you can grab a post-it note or have it engraved or stick something up on your refrigerator and you, if you stick verses up like that, stick up Mark 16, 7. He is going ahead of you. And that's all the phrase you need. But, because here's what I'm going to tell you that will do for you. Um, anxiety and fear should never be a part of a believer's life. If you look at the scripture, you'll see that, well, 1 John 1, 4 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. That fear uh, is when lived perfectly or love, when done perfectly, there is no room whatsoever for fear. So that the antidote to fear is love. Philippians 4, 6 tells us about anxiety, that when we're anxious, we cast our cares on him, cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. And with prayer and petition, we let our requests be made known to God, and the peace which surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, the Scripture says, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the remedy for fear is love. The remedy for anxiety is prayer. There is no room for fear and anxiety in a believer's life. Why? Because God has explained how for that not to happen. We're not loving well if we're afraid. And we're not praying well if we're anxious. Now, here's what... (laughs) You you can post up 1 John 1, 4 or Philippians 4, 6 if you want to, but if you need reminders of that... I would encourage you to post up Mark 16, 7, because here's the real truth. He's ahead of you. And that ought to take away every fear and every anxiety. He's ahead of you. Wherever you're going, he's already there. Now, I can't get my arms and, and mind around that, and you can't either. 
that he is the God of the past, he is the God of the present, and he's already in the future waiting on you. Now, there's no DeLorean. We're, we're not getting there, but, but he's already there ahead of us. Now, if you can get your mind around that, it ought to bring an incredible amount of encouragement to you that I have nothing to fear if he's ahead of me. Whether, whether my concern and my anxiety and my fear has been motivated by health, whether it's been motivated by finances, whether it's been motivated by relationship, whether it's been motivated by job, whether, regardless of the motivation of my fear and anxiety, if he is ahead of me in job, if he is ahead of me in health, if he is ahead of me in finances, if he is ahead of me in relationships, if he is ahead of me in marriage, I don't have anything to fear when he's ahead of me. When I know he's already ahead of me, waiting on me, I have nothing to fear about what that's going to be. Do I have any control over it? No. But I have no fear over it either because he is already there. Great, great verse of encouragement. In fact, somebody ought to put that on a t-shirt. He's ahead of you. He's gone ahead of you. That matters. It should matter to the life of a believer because where he is leading, he is already gone. Where he is guiding, where he is calling, where he is preparing, where he is educating, where he is nurturing, now he is already gone to make sure that comes to pass. Now, as I say, my little finite mind has trouble getting around that kind of thing. But it's true, and he said it, says that right here. He's gone ahead of you. He was already ahead of them, waiting on them to find him. Um, and we find that later in these later verses. But telling this story of what God's done and what he's doing and what he's up to and the fact that he's ahead of you is a powerful story for an unbeliever because you know what? They don't know any of that. I mean, they can intellectualize about God, but they can't experience something that only you can know because you know his, know his son Jesus and have his spirit living in your heart. Well, have we really put to death the old self is the question as, as we kind of wrap this up. And that is, are we allowing that old guy, that old gal to, to rear her head in our life? And are we allowing the enemy permission to raise them up again? in this situation, in that situation, in this hard place, in that? Are we allowing him permission and an open door to bring the old self back into the present? Well, if you do, that's our fault and the enemy's fault. It's not God's fault. Don't blame God for that. He's wanting to move forward. He's ahead of us, not behind us. Um, if we allow it to creep back in, and, and as, I, as I have said weeks ago, this is often incremental. You know, it's never, it's never Satan knocking on a big big door of the church saying, hey, can I come in to your life, to your world to mess you up? He never does that. You know what he does? He squeezes in one little small crack and he squeezes in another and he does that incrementally with a thought, a conversation, an attitude, a trip here. He does that incrementally. And and before you know it, our thinking has changed to what he wants us to think about ourselves instead of who we are. Secondly, not only are we allowing the past to creep back in, but are our priorities where they need to be? Magdalene's priorities were totally reshaped once she met the Savior. Once he changed her, gave her life, buried that old prostitute, and gave her new life, she totally changed from the inside out. Her priorities, her discipline totally changed as a result of that. Do you and I look like the old person? Or have our priorities changed? Is there something distinct and different about us. And I'm going to tell you, there should be in our culture. Um, It's getting, the gray lines are dividing in our culture. And I used to think that was a bad thing, but the the older I get, the better I think that is. The more black and white things become, the clearer things become, the more stark the realities are, 
between where the enemy is and where the Lord is and where we need to go. Now, as you and I progress, I don't think it's going to do anything but get blacker and whiter. I think the generation behind us will be blacker and whiter, and the generation behind them will be blacker and whiter. And again, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a, a, a bad thing if, if the generation behind us has enough priority to stand up and say, here's who I am, here's what I believe, here's where I'm going. Do you want to go with me? I'm not believing that. I'm not walking that road. I'm not accepting that. So that remains to be seen. But, but this, this idea of dying to our old self and letting the new man, letting the new woman out uh, is what we're called to, and I think what he's speaking to in these verses. Now, before we wrap up and finish up this idea of carrying on, I told you when we started, Mark, that we were going to bring in snakes and, and all these kind of things, and here we go in these verses. I want you to look at I'm not going to read them all, but when you look at verses uh, in, your, in your Bible, verses 9 uh, through 19 or, or through verse 20, they are, and I'm also, I, want, I want to talk about these verses in two separate contexts. Um, and then I will allow, I want, I want allow the Holy Spirit enough freedom to speak to your heart about what you need to believe <clears throat> about that. But I want to speak, first of all, about this idea of the process of translation. If those verses in, your, in the verse you're reading are either italicized or there is some note there to the fact that those verses were not in the, in the oldest manuscripts that were discovered in the translation process, that should raise a question in your mind, or perhaps not. Now, is all Scripture inspired? It absolutely is. Should this Scripture be in here? I don't know. I'm not a translator. I'm not a, I'm not a linguist. Uh, as, a, as the translation process occurred, and I, about 25 years ago, I did some research on this um, because I wanted to know myself. And, I, and as I researched the process of translation, here's, this is my opinion now. Uh, this is, you won't find this in the scripture, but this is my opinion. Here's what I came, came away believing as I discovered some things about the translation process. From a standpoint of accuracy, the most accurate translation of scripture is the New American Standard. It's the closest to the original Hebrew in the Old Testament and the original Greek and Aramaic in the New Testament for word for word, it's hard to word for word translate Hebrew. It's hard to word for word Greek to English translate um, into into the New Testament as well. But as as closely as can be done, the New American Standard is probably the most accurate translation that there is to study from. Uh, as you know, I teach from uh, the NIV here on Sundays, and or actually this is the the TNIV, TNIV the today's. Um, NIV and, and the 1982 NIV version of the NIV and this 2001 version of the NIV, the only difference that I've been able to tell is the difference in masculinity. Uh, if, if something is inferred to be mankind, the, today's NIV has changed it either to mankind or to people instead of man. Um, if it's designed to be male to man, it will leave the word man. But if it's designed to be, if it's, if it's interpreted to be mankind, It'll take away man and put either people or mankind. That's really the only significant difference that I've seen. But uh, next to New American Standard, NIV is probably, in my opinion, the second most accurate translation, at least the 84 version. Or actually, probably above the NIV would be the Revised Standard Version, which was done in the early 60s. Uh, The New American Standard Version was done in the early 70s, and the NIV in the early 80s. Um, Probably the fourth down the list in, in accuracy looking now from a word-to-word translation, is the New King James, and fifth would be the 1611 King James. 
Um, both are great translations. Uh, in fact, I'll look at King James every week as I'm studying. I'll look at New American every week as I'm studying. Um, but, you know, as you're, as you're studying the Scripture, if you're, if you're looking for what a word means or what a phrase means in the context of a verse, I would encourage you probably to go to either NIV or, better yet, even to New American Standard if you have that version available to see what that looks like. Um, because just from a standpoint of accuracy, the translation process, and I trust these translators. They know more than you and I do. Um, and as I've looked back in some of the backgrounds of some of these guys, certainly who translated the New American Standard um, in the early 70s and the NIV in the early 80s, uh, wow. I mean, it's he's, he's, he's just it's about a, a group of 20 or 25 smart, really smart guys that know a lot about languages and a lot about the history of the Scripture. Um, I was questioned once... Uh, rather heatedly about my opinions as it relates to the King James Version about it being probably the fourth or fifth most accurate translation in a word-for-word translation. And it is that because, and it's not the translator's fault necessarily, it is that because the king commissioned the translation, King James commissioned the translation in 1611 and hand-selected his own translators to translate that version. His goal, though, in the translation process was not accuracy. If you go back and look at, at how that came about, his goal was beauty. His goal was poetry. And the King James is a beautiful, very poetic um, translation of Scripture. Uh, and I encourage you to, to read it and, and don't, don't do away with it. Um, but there were, depending on where, who, who you read from, 13 to 17 rejections from King James himself. They would bring to him several books at a time. He would read the books and make marks and edits. And this, this doesn't flow enough. This, this isn't beautiful enough. Go back and reword it. And so his goal was not accuracy from the beginning. His goal was beauty. And it is a beautiful translation. But understand that as it is. And, and research that on your own. Develop your own opinions. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about, about that. But if this is called into question by people who are smarter than me about the fact that whether it should be in the canonized versions of Scripture, these verses or not, um, you, you judge that for yourself. And you judge the necessity of that for yourself. The second point I want to make, though, beyond translation, is truth. The scripture is full of timeless truth, and it's full of timely truth. And it's important that you and I understand the difference between the two. My opinion about these verses, 9 through 20, is that these are timely truths, not timeless. Here's why. Another example, for example, of, of a timely truth is that it's, it's a shame for a woman to cut her hair in the Scripture. You can go to the Scripture and find that. It's a shame for a woman to have short hair. Well, that, that is a timely truth because, you know who had short hair in biblical times? Prostitutes. That's why it was a shame for a woman to, short, to have short hair. Culturally, we've, that's not in our culture anymore. Consequently, I see that as a timely truth, not a timeless truth, that women should all have long hair. I see these verses as timely truths. Why? Because they were needed for the day. And if indeed Jesus said this, and I don't know whether he did or whether he didn't, the other gospel accounts don't have it, the other three. But if indeed he said this, he said it because it was needed. He, and he gave the authority to his disciples and his followers to pick up serpents, to drink poison, to do the other things that these verses are talking about, to validate for a time that they were his, that they were his followers, that they belonged to him. He did miracles on his own that blew people's mind while he was here. His ascension left a void. It left a void in their confidence. It left a void in the culture that needed to be filled. If it was filled by his followers casting out demons, picking up serpents, drinking poison in his name, it validated the fact that the same power God had is now in these folks. 
And I, that's why I believe that, in my opinion at least, it was or is a timely truth, not a timeless one. So you make that judgment for yourself about those verses. You go back and read them. And here's my admonishment to you. If you need to examine that for yourself, go do it. Go go study it for yourself. Go find a church that handles snakes and picks up drinks poison. And if, if that's part of your search and you need to have that validated or not, go examine that. Uh, check that out for yourself. And listen to what the Holy Spirit says to your heart about that. He'll tell us the truth all the time, always in accordance with his word. Translation and truth being timely or timeless, I think have, have everything and then some to do with, with those verses. You judge as you will on those. How do we carry on? How do we, in closing this out, how do, how do we really carry on beyond, beyond hard places, beyond our old nature being resurrected and trying to bury that over and over and over again day after day? How do we carry on in the midst of, of a hard place and a job? How do we carry on in the midst of a hard financial spot? How do we carry on in the midst of a marriage that's struggling? How do we carry on in the midst of a job that's not working and that's frustrating? And how do, how do we push on? How do we carry on in that? Well, I think we've been given the tools to do that. And I think, I hope you, as we've walked through this book of Mark, you've seen these tools come out over and over and over again in this text. And first of all, that is that we do have everything we need. <laughs> that's the good news. How do I carry on? Well, I've got everything I need. What do I need? I need his word, I need his spirit, and I need the story of the gospel. His word contains everything I need. His spirit contains the person that meshes with everything I need to know. And the story of how he's changed my life and how that same gospel can change yours is how we carry on. It's how this idea of reproduction is done. What are we reproducing? We're reproducing the message of his son, Jesus, that's contained in the pages of this book. How do we do that? We do that in the strength that the spirit provides. What do we do? We tell that story over and over and over again. That's how we carry on. That's how you walk through a hard place is with the fact that his word says I can make it through the hard place. Why? Because his spirit is in me and there is a reason for this hard place. It adds to the story that I have to tell about what God's doing in my life and through my life into yours over and over and over again. That's how you carry on. You don't carry on by a church meeting. You don't carry on by a Bible study. Good things. You don't carry on through a worship song, great thing. You know how you carry on? You carry on with the understanding that his word has everything I need. His spirit will guide me to every truth in it. And the story that he's doing in my life day after day after day will not only change me, but change them. Who in your world needs that? Who in your world needs to hear that story over again, over again? Let me tell you what God's done in my life. Let me tell you what he's doing in my life right now. He started this at salvation. This is where the gospel comes in. And here's what he's doing right now. I'm going to tell you that's a powerful story if we'll tell it. If we keep it to ourselves, he can't use it. If it'll get out of our mouths and into our conversation, he can use it over, 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 over again. And he will. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Crosspoint Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.